listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> well, hello everyone, and welcome back to our analysis of the plague years. I'm Nate, plague doctor number one. <laughs> and I, I'm Ray the plague itself what you guys can't see because we're not a visual podcast is ray and i are both uh wearing plague doctor masks right now and it's very uncomfortable my I'm, i hope you don't hear hang oh, i hope you don't hear uh my nose keeps hitting up against the mic the microphone i hope that doesn't come through the whole episode also i figure wearing the cloak also doubles as when i get off the podcast and go join my my um satanic underground ritual you know, I just wear mine to CVS when I pick up prescriptions. <laughs> That's, people just look at me really weird. They're like, "What the hell are you doing?" It's like, "Oh, have you ever have you ever listened to that band Ghost? I'm just one of their guitar players." <laughs> You're a nameless ghoul. <laughs> yes, I have become obsessed with the band Ghost as a sidebar for everyone. Uh uh, I, I recently have gone through their back catalog, and what a fun band! They're a fun. What band. a fun group! I, I I heard them describe um. Uh, it's, it's the edgier Scooby-Doo chase music. It is. It's funny because it's like when you look at their album covers and you see the way they present themselves, it sounds it, – it looks like they'd be like a deathcore band. But then you listen to it and it's like 80s hair metal almost. <laughs> well, like T Tobias Forge, their their lead singer, Papa, as, as we know him. One of his favorite bands is ABBA. I'm a I'm a ghost fan, which is what made me think of Plague Doctors because they had a period of time where their nameless ghouls wore Plague Doctor outfits. And and to be fair, this isn't off topic. They're a very cinematic band. They are. They're a hundred percent cinematic. I think like even if you just go watch like their performance when they were on Jimmy Kimmel, like the amount of detail. And then what I love about them is like the comedic element of how much of their music is like poking fun at the satanic panic era and like a lot of their lyrics are like you could look at them as almost reverse worship songs because they joke about like praising satan but it's so satirical in it's, the funniest it's super way satirical. and they're um if you ever get a chance i've seen them live three times and oh my god ray i've been wanting to see them so bad i didn't know you've seen them three times three times i saw them so i saw them when they were smaller and they played a, a a general admission cap venue here, then I saw them open for Iron Maiden, and then I saw them headline like an arena show, and like their production keeps getting better and better, and it is it feels like a whole cinematic experience seeing them live. And Cardinal Copia is the funnest funniest persona thus far. He is hilarious too. He'll crack he'll crack jokes like they're not. He doesn't take himself seriously live. Like he'll crack jokes throughout the set. I just bought um, a ghost shirt that has Copia on the front of it with the the nameless ghouls and ghoulettes, and the ghoulettes are holding rats. <laughs> <laughs> which that's amazing which i love uh but yeah my goal for this year is i really want to see them live i i love their music i think my favorite record of theirs is probably meliora yeah same but but prequel is really amazing too i think it's somewhere between the two of them but they just write bangers their music is so good it's catchy as hell too we've now become a ghost fan podcast <laughs> oh also um this I this uh was awesome, but I know it was going for like sixty or seventy dollars. Uh, but I actually on Amazon for nine bucks just bought the seven inch split with uh, Kiss the Go Goat on it. 
Oh, the the seven inches of satanic panic. Uh, yes, because I wanted it. I love okay, both of those so, songs. They're so I'll phenomenal. give you one tidbit about Ghost before before we we turn this into a Ghost podcast. At one at one point, <laughs> Ghost were selling a dildo with the head of Papa. Yes, that is incredible. Oh my God, I they're just a wonderful band. If you guys out there have not listened to Ghost, I think Ray and I both. Do you own any of their stuff on vinyl? everything see oh dude now i know now we can both i didn't think anybody else liked ghosts that i know so i'm so happy we can geek out (laughs) about ghosts now because i love them i've been listening to them non-stop and i'm like god i can't wait to see them live also seeing them with iron maiden had to have been an experience it was my favorite song by ghost though zombie queen zombie queen is awesome is that off of uh that's off the second record, right? Yeah, and Festi Suman. Yeah. Yeah, that song is phenomenal. I think lately, like I know it's a, it's a c- common answer, but I really like Dance Macabre a lot. Oh no, it's a. Well, well, that's the thing though. It's like they are singles for a reason. They're catchy. They're fun. They're one of those bands that you have fun with. You don't take themselves seriously. You have fun with them. And also, when they're carrying my casket out after I die, I hope someone plays Kaiserion. Oh, I, that's my favorite song off of Impera. <laughs> yeah, the the choral singing in the background is what gets me. It's beautiful. It's because they'll be taking you all the way from the stench of the heavens. <laughs> so now... now- now that we're a ghost fan podcast, um, we can transition into, uh, I just really quickly wanted to bring this up, Ray, and I know we talked about it before the podcast, but I just thought it'd be fun to mention, um, one of our mutual acquaintances on Instagram, Mr. Dean's Vinyl Collection, messaged me right after we did our 2020 episode and was like, dude, Nate, you need to watch this movie. I think you'd really love it. And it's a movie on Netflix called it his house which we just found out before the podcast ray has also seen and that would have definitely made it on my list this house is great also super weird to see doctor who in it oh i know right as the as like the weird kind of like to himself government employee (laughs) um but what i was really impressed with and like obviously it's a great horror movie symbolism for like what refugees have to deal with and like the trauma of that but i just really wanted to talk about like the cinematography in that film was gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Well, the also the set design of that house and, like, how that house looks decrepit and just beaten to hell. Oh, my gosh. I, oh, I can't get enough of it. What won't leave my mind for a really long time, which I just thought was beautiful, and I know it was a mixture of, like practicality with cgi but when he's eating at the dinner table and the camera pans out and it's just his table floating in the water with the with the um the broken up drywall behind him and then you see all those like dead bodies in the water oh yeah just amazing the like what i would say it's one of the best horror movies as far as like combining straightforward narrative horror with really great art house elements and but they blend also, they blend in a way that it's accessible to everyone also uh, not that we've although like i've never been like a big like supporter not supporter but a big like i don't give rotten tomatoes a lot of credibility because we all know that can be arbitrary sometimes yeah 
However, this movie does hold a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it 100% deserves it. I actually, uh, I filmed a review for YouTube uh, today, I think, after I watched it this week. And one of the things I said, and Ray, I'm sure you'll accent me on this one, 100% deserves to be in the Criterion Collection. 100%. It's one of those horror films that I feel like speaks volumes on an issue that isn't discussed enough. And like, it's not beat you over the head, but it's like using horror elements to kind of showcase what refugees deal with made it all the more impactful to someone like me who's never had to go through that type of an experience. Well, and even, like, I know that I've talked extensively about me not being born here and migrating to this country, but even... My situation was nowhere near as traumatic as that. And and I don't know about you, but like, and and I know people might think this is crazy because it's a horror movie, but there were moments throughout that when the scary scenes would happen, I was like tearing up because all I could think about was like this family who all, they have to present themselves a certain way when these people come to visit to make sure they're meeting all this criteria. And they're finally getting to a point where they're going to be able to live a life and have a home. And now this entity doesn't want them to do that. And it's heartbreaking. Well, and then the other thing that's, that is so, uh, again, uh, my experience wasn't to the same degree as, as theirs or as, you know, refugees from those countries. But like, for example, just, just to paint a, a quick picture, uh, for a long time, for basically from the time I migrated to this country till about the time I became a resident, which wasn't, I didn't become a resident until 2019. Um, so between the years of 2000 and 2019, I was either an illegal immigrant at one point, and then I was also under a work visa. But while I was under the work visa, you would think, oh, that's great. He gets to work legally, which was great. It was a huge, huge help for my family. But at the same time, I wasn't legally allowed to leave the country unless I had parole from the United States. So like that entrapment of like, you want something better, but you can't leave it almost hit home a little too hard for me when I was watching that movie because it touches on those to a greater degree. Yes, in a way that, like, I'm assuming people that have gone through that type of experience, it just had, even with what you're saying about your own, just has to resonate so heavily. And it was just so beautiful. And then that third act twist in the movie, which I won't give away, is heartbreaking because you feel awful about it. But I think also at the same time, you could partially understand it. Which is what makes it so hard. Yeah. No, it it, it does. It is. When I found the, the, the plot twist as well, it just, it messed me up. Yes, because you're thinking, oh my God, that's evil. But at the same time, you're like, you were about to die. So what extent would you go to to not die? And that and that's that's what was crazy about it to me. It pulled a lot of different emotions out of me all at once. No, it, it's a fantastic movie, and I honestly didn't realize it came out in twenty twenty. Otherwise, it definitely would have piqued my my list as well. Yes, it's just it's just like Ray and I said. You know, a lot of times we make these lists; they're relatively arbitrary because we just love film. And so when things like that happen, when something pops up, and Ray and I are like, "Oh, that came out that year," we'll just rave about it because we can. Yeah, that's why we created this, damn it. Exactly, so that we can have an excuse to to go about and talk about these movies because we love that. And uh, we love that you love it because uh, that's why we're here. We're here to bring joy to all of you. So speaking of joy, as we've titled this episode series, Films of the Plague Years, this is part two of the Plague Years, which, Ray, as of looking at my list, 2021 was a great year for movies. 
Yeah, I actually reanalyzed my list. This time I did make the time to reanalyze my list. Um, so I did include movies that I watched after the fact, but would have definitely fit in. So I've reanalyzed my, my list. Um, it, even upon reanalyzing my list, I was like, I can't, how do I fit all of these? It almost felt like half of my pre, literally like almost like, like four movies from that were originally on my list had to be taken off because I remember other ones. Oh yeah, it's crazy. But what Ray and I are going to do today is we are going to give you guys a top 10 like we did last week, but Ray mentioned something last week, which is that giving some honorable mentions and I've got some honorable mentions and I think we can rapid fire a few of them off if you'd like, sir. Yeah, we, we don't have, we don't have to spend too much time. We can just be like, boom, boom, boom. Thing. So would you like to start? Hit me with an honorable mention. Um, a quiet place part two. I big fan of that franchise. I like what John Krasinski has done. I can't believe Jim from the office pulled it off. Not once, but twice. It's a fantastic movie. Mine would be, one of the first ones, would be The Beta Test from Jim Cummings. Uh, we've praised Jim on here for Thunder Road, and we've both talked about The Wolf of Snow Hollow. This is probably his most creative and weird film, and I loved it. Which I still have to see. Another one for me would be um, Werewolves Within. Just a good old fun fashion whodunit movie with with werewolves it was it was just a good time it's one of those movies that is just fun to watch with the at&t girl <laughs> with the at&t girl uh, and actually josh rubin the director of that film starred in a shutter original movie from last year called a wounded fawn that is brilliant everyone should see it um another one on my list is one i've talked about half a million times on this podcast but shiva baby which uh is phenomenal i've told ray to watch it like three times now <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes, you you most certainly have. Hit me with another one. Um. Oh, well, I mean, Prisoner of the Ghost Land. I still haven't the, seen it. Weird movie. Don't get me wrong. I'm praising it. It's a weird movie, and I can totally see somebody watching it and absolutely hating it. So I, I get it if people hate it, but I love Nick Cage, so there. Well, my next honorable mention, funnily enough, even though I know this will be in your top 10, is Pig. <laughs> uh, and I won't talk about it much because I have a feeling it'll be on Ray's top 10. Pig's brilliant. Watch it. I have two more. How many you got? Um, I can do two more. Yeah, hit me with another one. Willie's Wonderland also goes sticking with <laughs> the Nick Cage thing. Nicholas Cage, come on. I still haven't seen Willie's Wonderland. I need to watch it. It's hilarious. Just that's all you need to know. It's hilarious. It's Nick Cage, so you know it's going to be enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, well, my next one is from a French director, Julia Ducournay, who made a film called Raw about cannibals. And this is her second film, Titan, which is one of the weirdest films I've ever seen. And I loved it. Oh, Titan. Love Titan. It's phenomenal. Really enjoyed it. So what is your last honorable mention, sir? And this one would have been place number 11, oddly enough, if, I would, if this would extend beyond the top 10. Um, I can't believe it didn't make my top 10, but alas, unfortunately the French dispatch didn't make my top 10, but I love the French dispatch. The French dispatch also did not make my top 10. It would be a, a on a list of honorable mentions. It's probably one of Wes's more middle tier movies. I think when we made our ranked list, it kind of fell on the same spot for both of us. Yeah, it was towards the bottom. Still brilliant. Wes is amazing. Well, my last honorable mention is from the wonderful Paul Verhoeven, and that is his religious satire film, Benedetta. That is one of the funniest movies and also most disturbing films I've ever seen. <laughs> I think you've told me about this. Oh, dude. It's like, if I was going to tell somebody, go watch a movie now, 
the go watch Benedetta. It's unreal. It's like I can't even. I I watched this with Jess and my brother, and my brother loves movies, and I've been trying to get him more into art house movies. And that movie ended, and he looked at me and was like, "What the fuck did I just watch?" <laughs> It was it was amazing. Like we all loved it, and it's a it's a really interesting commentary on the Catholic Church. And I always love movies that delve into that. Hence my obsession with Ghost. <laughs> um, so there's our honorable mentions. Uh, that was a good list, Ray. Very varying, but covered a lot of ground. So very, let's get into it. Very what very. Is number... It was mostly Nicolas Cage <laughs> for you. <laughs> So let's get into it. What is your number 10? My number 10, Nathan, is a movie that um, we've discussed multiple times, so we don't have to spend a lot of time. Um, I think you're, you're going to be shocked of how uh, of it being so low on my list, but my, num my number 10 is Come On, Come On. Oh, well, I have a lot to say about Come On, Come On. It's at a different spot in my list, but I adore this movie a lot. As do I. It's amazing. I just like the other one slightly bit better. But we can talk about it when we get to you because I'm sure it'll be slightly higher. Yeah, for, for certain. Uh, well, my number 10 is a movie that was probably one of the most fun theater-going experiences I've ever had in my life. And a movie that I will praise until the end of the time. And that is Mr. James Wan's Malignant. Oh, I knew Malignant was going to be on your list. I love Malignant so much, and actually, Ray, uh, my Malignant story has a little bit of tie-in with you that I think you'll appreciate. Uh -huh. uh, so, uh, my number 10 movie is Malignant, and I actually saw this movie the first time I went to Orlando, Florida to visit a man by the name of Mr. Nate Beasley. Oh, uh, shout out to Nate. Which the only way I know Nate Beasley is because someone named Ray, Analog C, scheduled a wonderful Criterion Collection talk. And I'd known Ray for a while, and we talked, and we were really close. And uh, he introduced me to Nate, and Nate and I hit it off just like Ray and I hit it off. And I was in Orlando going to Disney with my family, and I was like, I want to go meet up with Nate. And so we actually went to Disney Springs and watched Malignant. And getting to watch a movie like that with someone else who really loves film, it was such a fun experience. And I think the thing we loved the most about it was how many people were complaining about how bad it sucked when it was over, and we just laughed. <laughs> but I, I love Malignant. I think it's a brilliant film. I think James Wan knew exactly what he was doing when he made this movie. It's like an homage to 80 slashers and uh, giallo films, while also being its own unique thing. And I just rewatched this recently, and it still holds up. <laughs> that's awesome. And the score rules. Oh, the score rules so much. Yeah, so that's my number 10 is James Wan's Malignant. What is your number 9, sir? Um, number 9 was a little a little movie that uh, it actually came out on Apple TV. It was an Apple TV exclusive. I hope it gets some form of physical release because I think this is a movie that a lot of people would enjoy. Um, it's a it's the Tom Hanks movie Finch. Yes, you talked about this on one of the podcast episodes. I still need to see it. But it sounds awesome. It's just a, it, it's 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 really an accessible story. But so I've said this once, and I'll say it again. Um, a movie is completely pandered to me if it has either animals or sentient robots, and this one has both. That's awesome. I obviously anything. Whenever science fiction movies come out, I'm like, I know this has a big chance to be on Ray's list, especially with the criteria that you just covered. <laughs> 
Yeah, so Finch is great. I mean, it's uh, just for those who don't know, there is a story about um, Tom Hanks, who is dying. That's not a spoiler. You find out pretty early on he's dying. And he is he has this dog that he loves to death, and he builds a robot so the robot can take care of the dog once Tom Hanks dies. That... Oh, I don't know if I could ever show Jess that movie because she would just cry the entire time. Oh, I was crying like a child by the end. Yeah, that's like uh that's like shout out uh shout out Jenny Banshees of Inishiran. I'm oh, still no. I'm still I'm still destroyed from that shit. <laughs> oh gosh. Um no, but I'm gonna add I'm gonna push this up because this is like the second or third time that you've mentioned this and I need to watch this movie. This actually used to be way higher on my list, but Upon revisiting my list after, you know, I've sat with these movies for a year or two years now. Um, it went down on the list, but I still, it's still on my 10 and I still absolutely love it. Well, that's awesome. Well, that, so number, number nine is Finch. Wonderful. Uh, well, my number nine is a movie you and I talked about based on happenstance recently, which I thought you would appreciate that I'm bringing this one up. And that is because a wonderful company just pressed the score on vinyl. And that is the A24 film Lamb. Yay! Uh, Lamb. Uh, uh, Lamb is, I would probably argue, and I'm sure Ray is in this boat with me as well. I think, I personally think Lamb is one of A24's most slept on movies. Yeah, and just horribly uh, advertised. Yes, 100%. I feel like people thought that this was going to be more of like a straightforward horror film. And it's much more of a familial drama with horror as kind of like the backlog of all of it, which is fine. Like, that's the kind of things Ray and I love anyway, are when the, like those kind of things are pushed to the back burner. And those kind of things are like using horror as an analogy more than it just being like a how many jump scares can we get out of one scene and i i love lamb we did an entire episode on it so it's not like we need to talk about it in super in-depth detail but um yeah i love it awesome so that is my number nine is lamb are you ready for my number eight i am ready for your number eight. My number eight is Lamb. <laughs> number eight is Lamb! Hey! <laughs> yeah, uh, Lamb is uh, Lamb is wonderful. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of it. You should check it out if you ever get the chance. Maybe I should. I did, uh, thank, thankfully to my my friend, uh, my friend Ray, also goes by the handle Analog C, I was able to pick up a copy of that score from Mondo, oh, which I'm very excited I'm about. I'm so excited for it, too. Yeah, I, can't, I ordered that at After Yang, so I'm guessing the two of them. I wonder if they'll have them ready to go. Or if it's gonna be one of those like we're gonna wait an eternity for it. My, it's Mondo. So what do you think? Yeah, who, who the hell knows? What Waxwork's been doing a better job. I can say that they've been getting their stuff out quick normally. Yeah, no, they've been doing great. Waxwork doesn't doesn't mess around. Um, I still love Mondo. I just wish they would hurry up with some of these releases. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's like my uh, Friday the Thirteenth that I ordered from them. That it literally took them like seven months to ship it to me. Oh. Yeah, and I finally got it and was like, wow, this is beautiful. Been waiting a long time for it. <laughs> well, sometimes I've gotten stuff from Mondo where I was like, oh, I ordered you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. But no, great number eight pick. My number eight pick is from a director I absolutely adore by the name of Sean Baker. And this is his film, Red Rocket. Oh, I've yet to see this, but I've heard really good things from you, mostly. Yeah, uh, I actually, funny enough, I saw Red Rocket and Licorice Pizza on the same day, which you may see show up on this list. Uh, but uh, Red Rocket is about 
uh, Simon Rex, who a lot of people know from the Scary Movie franchise. I didn't really, kn- yeah, I really didn't know him from anything else. He's normally just like a overtly comedic actor, but he plays an ex porn star, and he's coming back from L.A. to this small town he lived in in Texas, and he goes to his ex wife's house and asks if he can live with them because he doesn't have anywhere else to go, and so he gets back in town and he's this really like charismatic person who a lot of people like and so he ends up getting back with like his high school weed dealer to start selling weed in texas to make money and he's like really manipulative but also like really lovable similarly to like uh adam sandler's character in uncut gems and one day he goes to this donut store and he meets this girl who's like 17 about to turn 18 and he starts to see the potential of her to be a porn actress and they start to form a relationship and you are trying to decide through the movie is he really feeling anything for her or is he just manipulating her for his own benefit and it becomes a really dramatic thought-provoking film while also being really funny and what i think you'd like about sean baker ray and i don't know if you've seen any of his other movies but he made the florida project tangerine starlet one of the things is almost all of his movies look at like more lower income areas but it's not in a way of like belittling it it's a way of looking at those areas where people are normally like oh, this is just the stupid idiots of the world. It looks at it through much more of a neutral and understanding lens, which is something I can really appreciate. And this movie, like, it's just wonderful. I can't say enough positive things about it. The only reason why it's not higher on my list is because literally my top nine from Lamb Down are all five star, well, even Malignant, are all five star movies in my opinion because 2021 was just an amazing year. Yeah, I agree. Uh, So Red Rocket, that's my number eight. It's a wonderful movie more people need to see it uh i i love it a lot well cool Uh, i have to push it up on my list absolutely so what is your number seven sir number seven is one that i have a feeling will show up on your list later so we don't have to spend a lot of time on it but it's it's a movie um that features uh, a talking fox actually oh it will show up on my list later (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is For david certain. lowry's the green knight well the green knight might actually be tattooed on my shin might or might not might well, ne- i don't know it might i'll never tell no, it definitely is it definitely is tattooed on my shin <laughs> i love i love the green knight i have a lot to say about the green we knight, can, uh, but i'll say it when i get we, there. we, we can let, let you get to your thoughts all i'll say is i love it and i'm sure i'll agree with practically everything you'll have to say about it later absolutely what a great number seven pick these have just been good lists so far. All right, give me give me yours. So my number seven is a movie that, honestly, I think it was in, like, my top four. And I was moving things around, and, like, it still could be in my top four really easily. But it is Joachim Trier's The Worst Person in the World. Oh, this is one that I've been recommended to. Uh, it's in the Criterion Collection. I picked up my Criterion version on the last sale, I believe. Uh, it is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen, and it also really... I think it would resonate really heavily with you. It's about a girl who's in her late 20s. Um, she's in this relationship with this guy. She feels like her life is really stagnant. And she doesn't really know what she wants to do with her life. And all of these weird circumstances start happening to her. Where she gets involved in these situations that kind of change her perspective about life. And like she still feels like no matter what happens, she doesn't think her life is really worth anything. 
And so the movie explores all of these different relationships that she has through like a really cool artistic uh, cinematographical lens that it's just so beautifully shot. The score is amazing. There's so many memorable and iconic sequences. And I think all of us at some point in our lives have felt lost and like we don't belong. And it's a movie that hits all those hallmarks on the head and really makes you feel it by the end of the movie. And I'm so glad Criterion picked this up. I love this movie so much and I could just praise it for forever. But my number seven, worst person in the world. I just want to note that Nate just said that, uh, a movie about a 20-year-old girl would resonate with a guy that's 33. Yeah, it's crazy how art works. <laughs> it's, it's it's wild. That's like when I watched Bo Burnham's 8th grade and I could palpably feel the pain of a 13-year-old girl. Well, did it, didn't Bo Burnham say himself that he realized that he has more in common with 8th graders than he does with people his age? I think with any great artist they should be able to make things resonate with you in one way or the other, even if you don't know their experience. Right. And all, all joking aside. Yeah. Like th that, the, if you can relate with a character, that's the very opposite of who you are in real life. That means that filmmaker did a damn good job. And Joaquin Trier is an amazing filmmaker. He made another really uh, awesome psychological, almost like, a horror suspense movie called Thelma, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but it is equally as amazing. It's almost like a indie version of the X-Men. Oh. Yeah, it, uh, definitely more character-driven, but it's incredible. Uh, Joaquin Trier is going to be one of those directors that anytime he releases a movie, I'll be there opening day. Nice. So, seven, worst person in the world. What is your number six, sir? My number six is the Academy Award winner, Coda. Coda was amazing, and it barely made it off my top ten. It should have been an honorable mention, but I had a feeling you were going to bring this movie up. Yeah, Coda is amazing. I mean, um, I love – one thing that I love about this movie is um, – you know, we've talked about this so many times and the importance of representation, you know, um, I can't pretend to understand what deaf people go through in their everyday lives. But if it's anything like what this movie portrays, my heart goes out to that community. Um, and it was just the way how this movie was able to evoke so much emotion without talking and through the usage of music is just astounding. I agree. And I feel like this one, and I'm sure Ray, you'll agree with me. I feel like this movie could very easily in the hands of the wrong director could have felt very much like a Hallmark movie. It could have felt percent. very fake. The emotion could have felt very inauthentic, but there was something about it that it was so natural and beautiful and the family dynamics all felt so real. And I love the, uh, the choir director. Probably yeah. one, of, one of my favorite characters in the entire movie. Just such a good... I always get excited to see whenever... He's in a romantic comedy with Samara Weaving on Hulu right now. You want to know something funny about that guy? So his name is Eugenio Derbez. And he... Um, he's a Mexican actor. He got his start in, in Mexican cinema. He... One of his first projects... And, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he had other projects that I'm unaware of. But one of his first like big projects was um, doing the dubbing for the donkey of Shrek. Oh my God! He got to be Eddie Murphy. <laughs> yeah. He, so in, in fact, I prefer watching Shrek in Spanish because of him. 
That's wonderful. I'm sorry, I couldn't watch Shrek in Spanish because I'd miss Mike Myers' voice too much. Donkey! <laughs> I No, I loved Coda. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, I think it's one of... In my opinion, one of the weirdest Best Picture winners. Like, I, like it, I'm glad that it did because of the representation of the film. But, like, when I look back on it, I'm like, this isn't a movie I would normally think would win Best Picture. Or get nominated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's wild. And especially for a film that, like, went straight to Apple TV. Yeah. I, I feel like this movie was... In fact, even when they were announcing the winners, I was like, it's not Coda. And then they said Coda. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> La La Land. Wait! No! It's Moonlight! <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, that was something. That was an experience. But no, uh, Coda is a beautiful movie and I love it a lot. So what is your number six? So my number six is from a director that, uh, as of recently, if I was making a, uh, like a Mount Rushmore of directors, she would probably be on the Mount Rushmore of directors. I love her work. I've seen all of her movies but one. And that is the director Celine Sciamma's film Petite Maman. I haven't even heard of this one. So this movie, Ray, I would highly recommend you watch it. This is a movie that your kid could even see. Um, it's on Hulu. It's literally like an hour and 15 minutes. It's super short. But it's a movie about this young girl, her grandmother dies, and her parents ask her to come help clean out her grandmother's house. And so she goes there, and while she's there, her parents are doing things. She kind of just wanders off, and she goes into the woods. And when she goes into the woods, she meets this other little girl that's around her age. And the two of them start to bond with one another and talk about, like, you know, she's talking about the loss of her grandmother. The other girl is talking about a lot of difficult things that she's going through. And they start to bond, and it becomes like a children's fairy tale almost. And I don't want to give the twist away, because it's really wild when it happens. But it is so beautiful. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Celine Sciamma is the director of the critically acclaimed film Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, she is, like, one of the most incredible directors working right now. Every film through her back catalog is just so beautiful and understands human emotion in a way that I feel like no other director does in this movie like you want to talk about a movie that just guts you in a way that you just don't even think is possible uh it and it's not even anything like overly hard to process it's just like Another one of those things where I feel like it's a lived experience that so many people have had. And you will connect with it in one way or another too, Ray. And it's so beautiful. The cinematography is incredible. All Celine's movies are. Uh, it just has this very otherworldly feel. It's almost like Spike Jones is where the wild things are. Very, like, otherworldly and strange while also having really beautiful dialogue. And this is a movie that just got announced from Neon is going to hit the Criterion Collection this year. Yeah, so I'm going to be picking it up as soon as it gets released along with Inland Empire with da from David Lynch. So I can round out my David Lynch. But, yeah, Petite Maman is my number six. It's a beautiful movie that I really think if you're a lover of film, you should watch at least once. Anyone out there, watch this movie. It's on Hulu. Barely an hour long. Totally worth it. Awesome. So we're we ready to get on our number fives? It's the number five countdown. F top five. I'm ready. All right. So I'm going to take you back in time a little bit to Little Ray. Um, so I am not by any means an anime person. There are some that I've enjoyed. Um, so I there are some that I've enjoyed. And there's one in particular that I was hooked on when I was a kid. 
The name of this anime is Roroni Kenshin. Yeah, Roroni Kenshin. So I know all about Roroni Kenshin. I love that's my favorite anime. And um, when they announced that they were gonna make a live action um, film, I was so nervous because we've all seen Dragon Ball Evolution. Mm-hmm. We've all seen Death Note. I have not seen Death Note, but I, I never will watch it. Don't, don't, no, don't. Not, not even, not even Willem Dafoe could oh, save God. it. Oh, God. Um, so when they announced Rurouni Kenshin, I was nervous. But then I found out that Japan wasn't giving the rights to the U.S. Japan was going to make the movie. Nice. So you know it's going to be good. So I was like, oh, okay. And they did a trilogy. And the trilogy was fantastic. I loved the trilogy so much. They... They did such a good job at adapting the the anime to the film. And I thought we were done. But then um, they wanted to do the final chapter of the movie. And if you're a fan of Rurouni Kenshin, you know that um, they have these things called the OVAs, which are like these um, two bookends to the story. Yeah. And then the first bookend is the pre- the prequel, basically, of how he became an assassin because Rurouni Kenshin used to be... The, the premise is that he was an assassin uh, for the government. And then when the revolution ended in Japan, he gave up killing. He didn't want to kill anymore. Um, he took an oath of, you know, of ne- never to kill again. So the first bookend of the story got made into a movie and it was the, the beginning. And then they did the final part. And notoriously the ending of the of the anime was very controversial because it was a really dark depressing ending that was almost like an insult to the fans yeah so then netflix um had them still with the same japanese company so still made by japan had them do part the the final and basically corrected all the wrongs of that god-awful ending that we got on the on an anime and then they made the film and the the film is called Rurouni Kenshin the final which is basically the final chapter and yeah they rewrote all the wrongs from the anime it finally has an ending that was worthy of the character that I grew up loving for so many years so number five was Rurouni Kenshin the final Imagine what's going to happen if they blow the ending of One Piece for all those kids out there that have been watching for 1200 episodes Oh gosh! <laughs> yeah, and, and like, like if they come out and the end of it is the One Piece, the One Piece isn't real. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, there'll be a riot. And so, yeah, yeah, that's that's what's gonna end up happening. I've never seen an episode of One Piece, but both of my brothers are obsessed with it, and they keep saying, "Dude, you'll love it." And I'm like, "I know, but it's thousand. It's like a thousand episodes." Is the re- when am I gonna fit a thousand is episodes in with why, all the movies? Is I the watch? reason why I never got into Doctor Who? I looked at the list. I was like, yeah, I'm out. Yeah, but the thing with Doctor Who is you really only need to watch Doctors number nine through current, which is not that long. I love Doctor Who. Um, (laughs) Also, my favorite anime is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I don't know that. Like I said, my my knowledge of anime is limited to like three or four. (laughs) With you being a horror movie fan, you would love it. It's essentially essentially about – big buff gay vampires love it <laughs> it's it's amazing and there's a bunch of david cronenberg references and all of the characters are named after 70s rock rock bands that's amazing like uh one of the main characters in the first season his name is robert eo speedwagon <laughs> And uh, when they when they when they call him out the in Japanese they say speedwagon kun, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love it's it's like 
my my youngest brother Sam introduced it to me, and it's honestly one of my favorite things in the entire world. I could go on about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure forever. If, if even if you're not an anime person, if you're a horror person, you'll love it. Nice, it's amazing. So, but no, uh, Roroni Kenshin. That's one of those I've seen episodes of it. I've never watched it all the way through. But now, since you you praised it that highly, it makes me want to go all the way through. Wasn't it like late '90s that it came yeah, out? Yeah, like late '90s. Um. And yeah, so, but the adaptations were great. Like it's, it's rare when I see a good anime adaptation and then they nailed it. I mean, obviously they took some liberties as you, as you normally do, but they fixed the ending. And that's why this movie is so high on my list because for a long time as a kid, I was devastated of how awful the ending of that anime was. And I feel like with this movie, they went back and fixed that awful ending. Mm-hmm. That that's awesome, and I'm always glad when that happens for people who are passionate about a property. Just like I hope with this new Indiana Jones film that they fix all the wrongs of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, we'll never get the wrongs fixed from the last three fucking Star Wars movies, though. <laughs> so what what is your number five before we get derailed in the train of hatred? Yeah, so uh, I won't beat around the bush on my number five. My number five is David Lowry's The Green Knight. <laughs> Uh, I love this movie so much. And, uh, you know, one of the things is you talk all the time about those, uh, those bonding moments that you have and those things in your life that mean a lot to you. My youngest brother, Sam, he lives with me right now. Uh, he's lived with me for a couple years and Sam is like one of the most intelligent people I know when it comes to history and knowledge of history. And he loves all things like he's really into the Norse culture, which when I talk about the Northmen, that was like his favorite movie last year. But he loves watching anything history affiliated. So we sat down to watch The Green Knight. And obviously that whole lore has so much to it. There's so much depth and richness to those worlds. And we watched that movie and both of us just like we could not stop just bonding over it when it was over. And we talked about that movie for weeks after we watched it. And I think... It's so unique because it's such a simple idea. Like that that last quote of the movie, the what else ought there be? What what an allegory for life. Like in general. Like I, I just think there's a lot of people who didn't like it because I think they thought they were gonna expect more. But it like the simplicity of it is what makes it so beautiful. And you wanna talk about some of the best cinematography in an A twenty four movie? Holy shit. Yeah, seriously. Like, amazing. And I love all the, like, how they were able to, in, like, a little under a two-hour runtime movie, create all those side quests. Who would have thought in one quest you'd be attacked by Barry Keoghan, you would be uh, hunted down by a ghost, and then kissed by Joel Edgerton? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no one thought that you were going to deal with all that stuff in the span of one day. Uh, What a day. But, yeah, I... Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I absolutely love that. Uh, just amazing. It's a movie that I feel like you can pull a lot out of on revisits. Oh yeah, you should pick up. Uh, have you picked up the the um, 4K Blu-ray that A24 did? I absolutely do. Well, I don't have the specialty one. I just have the regular 4K Blu-ray. But I need to get because I've I've seen pictures of it and it looks awesome. It's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my. My uh, my thing about the Green Knight is who knew that a movie so thought provoking and interesting would have a scene about cum. <laughs> I just 
I just couldn't believe it, honestly. Uh, but yeah, my number five is The Green Knight. I love that movie. It's brilliant. Well, are you ready for my number four? Let's hit it. What's your number four? We've talked about this movie a couple times. Um, once again, another sci-fi spectacle shows up on my list, and that is Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Dune would have been in my honorable mentions, probably close to my number 11 or 12 spot. Brilliant movie. I love Dune. Um, it, this was another bonding movie because when they announced that Dune was happening, my brother and I got really excited, and we both read the book around the same time, so we would get on the phone and like discuss the book together and got really hyped up for, for this movie and obviously saw it in theaters and you know hyped each other up for it. And it did a really great job at adapting it as, as well as it could have. Uh, obviously they took some liberties with the book because it would be really weird if they kept the book exactly, you know, completely true to the book. It would have been just too weird of a movie, but I loved it. I think Denis Villeneuve did a great job with Dune. We talked about it plenty of times, so we don't have to spend too, too long with it. But yeah, number four would be Dune. Yeah. And I think the only reason Dune isn't on my list is because as of right now, it's not a completed thing. It's just one thing. But I feel like once I know the scope of it all, it, it might move forward on my list when I know what it is completely. But as of what it is, where it stands now, it's it's a masterpiece. Not as good as 2049, but it's no. still great. No, 2049 is like was my favorite movie of that decade. Yeah, one of the best movies I've ever made, period. So what is your number four, though? So my number four is probably my biggest surprise of 2021, and I talked about it on the podcast a few times. Um, but that is the uh, Princess Diana biopic, Spencer. Oh, you've talked about Spencer in the past. Yeah, and like I said, I, I won't dwell on it too long because I've talked about it before, but one of the things I loved about it is rather than it be like an accurate historical look at Princess Diana's life, it's much more of a movie about a woman forced into fame that just wanted to be a mother. And it's a really hard watch, but it's also a watch that even like what Ray was saying before, as me never even being a parent, let alone being a person in the celebrity-dom, uh, I can feel her emotions. Kristen Stewart gives such a brilliant performance. You can just feel every second of pain that she's experienced and where her mind is at and and where she wants her life to be. And it's so beautiful. And obviously when you talk about scores, Johnny Greenwood's score to this movie is like one of my favorites ever. I listen to it over and over and over again. It's just beautiful. And yeah, what it's on Hulu. You guys should watch it. And num number four is Spencer. No, oh, I got to check out that one still. You've sang its high praises over and over again. So Yeah, I told I told Jess to watch it one night because she didn't get to watch it with me. And she messaged me and she was like, oh my God, that was brilliant. And I was like, yes, people need to watch it. I know so many people are often put off by biopics, but it's so different. It's not a regular biopic at all. Huh. I'll have to push it up to my list yet yeah, because you've sang its high praises multiple times. Yeah, so what is your number three? Oh, my number three <laughs> is something that should be expected to be on this list. Um, we've talked about it multiple times as well. And that is Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Last Night in Soho would be an honorable mention for me. And you know what's funny about Last Night in Soho is it's a movie that beforehand I was saying that I might not necessarily be in my top of Edgar Wright's, but the more I think about it, the more I love it. Yeah, that's kind of my reaction to um, I love Last Night in Soho. I love something I love about this movie and about Edgar Wright as a whole is how his usage of music in his movies. 
he has such a great ear for picking great stuff to create a mood to like the music is a character in all of his movies and um obviously last night in soho is no no exception um performances you know matt smith thomas and mckenzie anya taylor joy like everybody in this movie is spot on and i know that a lot of people have their own interpretations but to me personally this movie is completely like a cautionary tale about nostalgia about not getting too caught up in nostalgia. Like, it's great that you love certain eras, and it's great that you love certain things, um, but at the same time, you should be more, you know, apt to, like, the future and what's ahead. I actually just saw a hilarious TikTok that I'll have to send to you, where this guy is like, I miss when bands, and he's obviously making fun of it, he's like, I miss when bands used to sing songs that were just filled with uh, blatant misogyny, and then the chorus that talked about how much they love Jesus. Yeah, oh my god, yes. <laughs> but but the, the, the funny thing about that, though, is that, like, yeah, I look back at, like, the post-hardcore, you know, metalcore era that i grew up on thinking oh that music is great but like when you go back and listen to the lyrics i'm like man some of the stuff is kind of cringy and i feel like it's the same thing with all the eras you know if you you can go look at back at an era like the 60s 70s 80s what have you in fondness but don't get so wrapped up in it that you forget to move forward exactly that's like uh when you look at a lot of those 1950s rock and roll songs and they're like she just turned 14 <laughs> and it's like what are you singing about dude call the police no uh honestly uh this year for christmas um jess when that movie came out all she played around our house for months was the last night in soho soundtrack like over and over and over again. So I bought her that Mondo press for Christmas. Oh, it's a great um, press. Yeah, it's amazing. She she played that sc- soundtrack so frequently. It, and it it's what you said. I think Edgar Wright is perfect when he picks movies for or music for his movies. His music always fits so well into the tone. And this is one of those movies that I won't go too into detail about it, but it was one of those that like the people who read wrote negative reviews were like stop letting men write women characters and i was like i mean obviously i'm not a woman but like most of the women i i talked to that saw that movie didn't seem to have an issue with it and maybe i'm just out of the loop but i thought it was i thought it was great yeah i loved it and for that reason last night in soho is my number three Wonderful. Well, my number three is a movie that I've sung its high praises on the internet multiple times, including our podcast, I think. And this is a Criterion Collection newer ad uh, from the director Ryosuku Hamaguchi, and it's the film Drive My Car. I knew this was going to be on your list. Yeah, Drive My Car, uh, for all the reasons Ray said that he loved Coda, is the reason why I love Drive My Car. Um, Which, the simple story of Drive My Car is... A man finds out that his wife is cheating on him, and he comes home from work one day. He wants to confront her about it, but he never is brave enough to do it. And he comes home from work one day, and she dies tragically, just out of nowhere. She has, like, a heart attack or something. It, it's really strange. And they uh, they both work on stage plays, and I think she's a writer, and he works on directing, and so he decides to go to this college to take on doing a project that she was working on. And the cool part about the movie is the projects that they do when they're acting, they get people from all over the world that speak different languages. And they have huge subtitles on the back wall so that anyone from different places in the country or anywhere can understand it. And what's cool is when they rehearse the dialogue, 
they sit around a table and when the actors read their lines, they hit the table when they're done with their lines so that the person who doesn't speak that language can know when to come in. They even have a person who does sign language as one of the main characters. And so that's a really beautiful part of the movie. But overall, what the main story is, the school won't let him drive back to his house. Part of his contract is he has to have a driver. And so this girl who's probably like 10, 15, 10 years younger than him maybe starts driving him home. And the two start to connect over multiple tragedies that they've both had in their lives together. And it's a really beautiful human story that it's about a three-hour runtime and not a single second feels wasted and ray you know it's a piece of cinema when the title card hits at the 46 minute mark <laughs> what 46 the 40 the 46 minute mark and the title card comes up on screen i was like what <laughs> um that's almost that's almost as intense as mandy coming in at like the right at halfway point of the movie Yes, it's it's amazing. Uh, I I'm so glad this is on Criterion. It a hundred percent deserves to be on Criterion. It's a beautiful movie that like I was literally sitting on my couch like in a ball of tears when I was watching it. And any movie that can move me to tears is a positive film in my opinion. So number three, <laughs> number three is Drive My Car. So are you ready for my number two? I am ready for your number two. So this used to be lower in my list, oddly enough. And because when I watched it, I was like, I love it. This was great. But this is no highbrow art. This is no, you know, I was, I think I was trying to carry myself a little too seriously. And the more I think about it, I was like, you look, this movie's dumb. This movie is everything you want to call it, but I can't help but watch it and feel good and smile and feel like the happiest man alive, which is why my number two movie is Godzilla vs. Kong. A movie I have never seen, but I am not surprised that this is on your list whatsoever. <laughs> you know me. I love the giant lizard. I love the giant ape. Them fighting each other just made sense. Also, like, it was one of the funnest experiences I've had in the movie theaters. Like, people were audibly cheering when they were fighting, you know? Uh... People were screaming like it, it felt like we were watching like it almost felt like we were really watching those two creatures fight because people in the audience were screaming. They were clapping, you know, whistling. It was like such a fun crowd that I saw this movie with. And, you know, we, we've talked about our, our experiences going back um, to the movies. And even though I had already been to the movie theater several times, I feel like when Godzilla vs. Kong came out is when I truly felt like the movies were Back. Yes, and that, isn't that the greatest feeling ever when you can go watch a movie about two giant monsters fighting each other and have a smile on your face the whole time and be like, cinema's back, baby! <laughs> well, and then I remember reading an article saying it's like what Christopher Nolan tried to do with his cinematic sci-fi film was accomplished by two giant CGI creatures and was to, re to revive cinema. And it did, for me at least, it did. And... Obviously, the movie is a very generic plot, but, you know, sometimes it's all I need. And the cool part about Godzilla vs. Kong, in my opinion, is that it's directed by a director I really love, Adam Wingard, who made Your Next and The Guest, which are two of my favorite horror movies. And, you know, he he did wonderful. He did a great job with it. Um he he gave us everything we needed and everything we wanted. I can totally overlook all the dumb character choices and stuff like that because every time I saw those two 
fighting on screen. It was a grin from ear to ear. And also, I thought I would let you know, this movie had like four writers on it. But did you know one of the writers would be a future director of Godzilla? A big, a big uh, fan of yours is uh, Mr. Michael Doherty. Oh, I do. The, the director of, of Krampus. Yeah, uh, he, he wrote uh, some of the screenplay to Godzilla vs. Kong. Well, he directed it, got to the King of the Monsters, so. Mm-hmm. Is it, was that good? Did you like that one? I, look, listen. You asking me if I like the Godzilla movie is like <laughs> me asking you if you like the David Lynch movie. Of course I liked it. Uh, you liked it. It was enjoyable. I need to sit down and just bite the bullet and watch them all. The last Godzilla movie I watched was the Brian Cranston one that he died in the first seven minutes or whatever. I actually legitimately love that movie. It's really good. And I've heard uh, a lot of people who are fans of the series tell me that the one I need to watch is Shin Godzilla. That is probably my favorite one yeah and a lot of people say that one's so great because it's much more of like society's reaction to godzilla it's less about the monster battles and more like the procedural government side shin godzilla was a critique on the japanese government or on how they handled the tsunamis um, that's cool that happen um and also shin godzilla actually won so i guess japan has their own version of the academy awards and godzilla won best picture in japan that's awesome so shin godzilla is probably my favorite but for this year godzilla versus kong number two so let me ask you a question if i jump into godzilla do i need to watch it in any specific order or can i just watch them other than the new like franchise that existed can i just watch them yeah uh, obviously the Obviously, the MonsterVerse, you do want to watch them in order. But honestly, like, if you ju if you really want, like, uh, I will always tell people, watch the, the OG first. Yeah. And then after that, it doesn't really follow a plot. I mean, the, the Showa era sort of follows the plot, but it, it feels more like Ultraman, where it's just isolated episodes. Yeah, so so what you're saying is the first Godzilla I need to watch is I need to re-watch Roland Emmerich's. <laughs> <laughs> hey that was a great one no i'm talking about like the yeah. og black oh and i know one. you were i was just giving uh, you shit <laughs> and honestly like if i were to give you like a like a def uh, a definite list the original godzilla um shin godzilla and um this monster verse like the rest of them are really cool i really love the rest of the godzilla movies but they really are more of just like fun rubber suit movies. I love that. I need to check that out. I I'm gonna I'm gonna make it my goal this year to watch as many Godzilla movies as I can for you, Ray. <laughs> well, careful, because then I'm gonna be like, well, now you have to watch Gargantuas. Now you have to watch Space Amoeba. Now you have to watch Mothra. <laughs> I, I I will watch as many as you want me to. But I'm gonna start off with the OG. Yeah, start off with the OG, and then kaijus will much like me will become your identity <laughs> that sounds wonderful to me what a great number two pick i love hearing you rave on about the thing you're passionate about i love the giant lizard what is yours though what is what is your number two well my number two pick is not a surprise to you because you mentioned it earlier is mike mills come on come on uh, i figured that was going to be it yeah What's what is what is Nate a sucker for more than uh, than character dramas? <laughs> I mean, like realistically, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because of the amount of trauma that I've I've experienced in my life. But when I watch movies about shared trauma, there's something that makes you feel less alone when you watch that type of material. 
And I don't know, like something about Joaquin Phoenix's relationship with his nephew in this movie, it was so, it didn't feel like characters. They felt like people. It just felt so real. And one of my favorite things, which I won't go on forever because Ray and I have talked about this a few times, but I loved the usage of literature in this movie. And the way that the title cards would come up of the different sections from the books, the black and white cinematography made it feel like from such another time. And I love the idea that those documentary takes where they were interviewing people were real. Yeah. It, It really added another level to the movie. And it's one that I feel like since I saw, I've never really stopped thinking about. And I'm hoping Mike, Mike Mills deserves to be in the criterion collection. None of his films are, um, I'm hoping that some of his other stuff will get it. Some of his stuff will get in there. Cause you know, I've praised 20th century woman multiple times, but I just love, come on, come on. We're suckers for Joaquin Phoenix. I think it's a beautiful movie. And the score from the Desner boys is pretty amazing. Oh, which I'm so excited for the new national. Yes. That's going to be amazing. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, which by the way, if you like the national, you need to listen to one of my favorite albums from last year which is Ants from Up There from Black Country, New Road, which they sound a lot like the National. Ooh, is that the one that looks like it's like a plane inside of a plastic bag? Inside of a Ziploc bag, yes. Please listen to it immediately. With how much you love the National, uh, the lead singer's voice sounds a lot like him. It's brilliant. I, I Like, truly some of the most beautiful lyricism on a record I've heard in years. But aside from all that, I love Come On, Come On. It's my number two pick. Well, Nate... I think my number one is no surprise. It's easy to know. Yeah, no surprise to anyone. <laughs> not a surprise to even me. Yeah, it's not a surprise, but I will say this is the ongoing theme of my life. Mr. Nicholas Cage making it to my top 10 every year since 2018. Or 2019, I can't remember which year. Point being is my favorite movie of 2021 was Pig. Ray, I just want to say... If we make a goal for this podcast, it's that in our fame and in our celebrity, when, when this podcast goes off the charts, I am going to fight to interview Nick Cage. Um, careful. You might just hear me fawn over Nicolas Cage over for that's I'm going to need you to hold your composure. <laughs> if it happens, I'm going to need you to keep it together because the first thing I would want to do is I'd want to say, this is a snakeskin jacket. <laughs> we wear actual snakeskin jackets. <laughs> Which, by the way, you still haven't seen Wild at Heart. And I need I that to we change. Need that to happen. Mr. Nick Cage fan, you haven't even seen one of his best films ever. Best performance. Which, by the Amazing. way, we're going to have to have a Nicolas Cage episode at some point. You know that, right? You know what? That would that would be so much fun to have a Nick Cage episode. I'd love to rave about the Cage. He's just he's he's one of those icons of American cinema. But aside from that, Pig is a beautiful movie. And what I love about Pig is how subversive it is. Because people probably thought that that movie was going to be Nick Cage is going to grab like an assault rifle and go after these people that took his truffle pig. But it was so quiet and subdued in a way I didn't expect. Well, and then like, I feel like a lot of people also like some of the scenes, like one of my favorite scenes of that is when he's just sitting down talking to the, to the head chef at this fancy restaurant and talks about him wanting to open a pub. That scene was so intense. I couldn't look away. Oh yeah. I a hundred percent agree. That was one of the, it was such a powerful scene in the movie, and I do love that 
the director added the scene of like the underground chefs fighting, but then Nick Cage got the shit kicked out of him. Also, like, let's not underestimate how great Alex Wolf was in this movie. He was amazing. I didn't expect him to be as good as he was. Also, I feel like this movie, it wasn't just like Nick Cage's relationship, like trying to find a pig, you know, but it was also like there is familial relationships, you know, father and son, you know, being estranged from each other, wanting to become your own man. There's so many themes um, that revolves around this. And um, honestly, like it's one of those movies that I was just fascinated by i saw it multiple times i saw it and they got a chance to see it in theaters and it was it was an incredible film that just lives rent free in my brain and it was my favorite movie of 2021 and it remains my favorite movie of 2021 that's a great pick i honestly like if i think about it this one would it, it would be in my top 20 where i don't know um, I feel like on revisits, it could be even higher on my list. It's just like I said, like this year for movies was just something else. Like we got some, like similarly to 2022, we just got some amazing films and it just makes me excited for the future of film as a whole. Yeah. Oh, me too. Um, biggest awards snub ever. Yeah. Nick Cage should have got nominated. Yeah. At least the nomination, but you know, it is what it is, but um, Nick Cage even claims that this was this has been one of his favorite movies to make. Seriously? Yeah, he said that this is one of his favorite the one of the, his favorite movies he's ever worked on. That's awesome. So I love it. I love Nick Cage, and I also love that Nick Cage still has that emotional punch. That he's not just a one card man that just does wild things. He still has a range, and I also appreciate that because I feel like he has kind of cemented himself as like the crazy guy. But this movie kind of showed the world, like, no, he's still a high-caliber actor that can deliver some beautiful, dramatic films. That's all. That's awesome to hear. I love that. And I'm so glad. Uh, I'm so glad that this remains your number one and that Nick Cage continues to put out quality content that you can enjoy and not just, like, film straight released to Redbox. <laughs> I have a, D- I have a oh, Blu-ray yeah. copy of Pay the Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that no i kind of don't yeah want that's to. a that's a straight to blu-ray nick cage movie baby whenever i see him at the at the dollar store i always buy him <laughs> he's like i have he's like i have 15 copies of knowing i even have uh i even have that movie he did with nicole kidman trespass i have i i have the one that like, he did with um elijah wood the trust that i would actually watch it was, it was actually it's actually pretty cool <laughs> oh then i'm gonna have to check that out then Maybe stream it. Don't buy it. Maybe stream it. <laughs> okay, that I'll I'll do that. I'll take your advice. <laughs> it, it's it's a fun time. Don't get me wrong. It's a fun movie, but maybe stream it. Okay, <laughs> Don't expect greatness. Just expect fun. I will do that, sir. All right. Well, what the heck is your number one, though? Well, I'm sure you could probably guess if you tried hard enough what my number one movie is. I mentioned it earlier in this podcast. Uh, my number one movie is last week on the episode. I said that I'm thinking of ending things as one of my favorite films of the decade. This would be tied for the number one spot for my favorite film of the decade. And that is Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. A movie I've yet to see. Also one of the most controversial movies released that year for the dumbest reason imaginable. And it just goes to show how tone deaf people are about movies. Um, This was the movie that everybody was like, 
oh, the 23-year-old girl is in love with the the 17-year-old boy. And no one actually got it. They clearly didn't watch the movie. Because everybody that rates this movie high is like, you didn't understand it whatsoever. But this movie is honestly just about two people finding themselves at a period of time in their lives where they need someone. And Alana Heim's character is this girl in her 20s. She still lives at home with her sister and her parents. She's working at like a like a school photo shoot thing. And she goes to school or to the school one day to work there. And Cooper Cooper Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, is a young kid there and he starts flirting with her and she's like, "Oh, he's a stupid little kid, like whatever." And he like is charming enough that he's like, "Hey, I'm an actor. You should come with me to one of my my gigs and so you find out he's in this hollywood scheme and he's he's a really popular child actor and he also wants to be an entrepreneur so he tries to open a business to sell mattresses and he starts making a ton of money off of it and uh he like worships her like she's this goddess while at the same time every man that she dates in her life treats her like she's nothing and so you have this dichotomy of this kid who still has an experienced life, who's fawning over this person that he sees all of her potential and all of her intellect and everything that she is, when all the men that she's going for in her life see her as this, like, nothing. Just like, oh, you're just another woman that I'm dating. And, and it shows the ways that she gets used and treated poorly. And the movie is so much more about just finding a person in your life that can build you up at that moment that you need it. And I think that's something that everybody needs to feel is like to know they have someone in their life that understands them at that period in time. And it's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. The score's beautiful. The cinematography's amazing. It's funny. It's dramatic. It's everything I could want. It's, I wanted to go right back in the theater and watch it again right after it came out or right after it was over. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies ever. I feel like it's, I'll just continue to love this movie more as time goes on. But that is my number one film, Licorice Pizza. We did it. Films of the plague years. Uh, those are some solid lists, Ray. And as always, I appreciate you for sharing your lists. Oh, always, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure for, for you indulging me on all things Godzilla. So... As we always say, if you want to head over to the Instagram at the Film Monsters Podcast, you can let us know what your favorite films of 2021 are, and hopefully we find something that we've never seen. That would be really awesome, and maybe we could even talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, so do it up. Hit us up. Um, I love it. I love hearing people get excited about it when they interact with us, when they reach out and, and tell us about the things that they, they've enjoyed as well, because you never know. Nate just discovered that he would have really loved his house. So hit us up. Exactly. And so speaking of, you know, reaching out and social media and great things, our very own at analog C, Mr. Ray over here was featured on another podcast. Oh yeah. I got, I, I got a chance to, um, to sit down with, with my buddies waffle and stooge as they go by on the interwebs. Um, on their lovely podcast, the Waxwork Show. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, the Dead Wax Show, not Waxwork. Waxwork is something else. Waxwork is, like, where we give, like, half of our income to, Ray. <laughs> yeah, that Waxwork is, like, Waxwork is, like, owns the second mortgage on my house. Do you have stock in them yet? Because you should. 
<laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, no, I, I, I am a subscriber, so hey. It was really cool, Ray. I was listening to the episode, and it like obviously I'm a fan of you. That's why we do this together. But I do love getting to hear you talk about the things that you're passionate about. And I just want to let you know, as a person who edits your voice week after week, it's cool to let. It's cool to know, like we're both music and movie guys. And I always like when we talk about movies on here. I always get to hear your passion bleed through in the way you talk about it. But hearing you talk about music in that light is really cool for me. And I really enjoyed hearing the insight that you provided. I loved that thing at the beginning of the episode where you were talking about the albums you picked up recently, and I was like, "How is Ray gonna narrow this down?" <laughs> I was like, "There's no way." <laughs> well. The, it- and to be fair, like, usually my weeks are not that loaded, you know? <laughs> it They just happened to feature me in a week that was, like, all of my pre-orders arrived at the same time. That's going to be me in, like, the next couple of weeks. I've got, like, probably 17 albums kind of floating in the ether right now. <laughs> um, but, no, I, I'm really excited, Ray, that you got a chance to do that. And uh, everybody should go check that out and listen to Ray talk about that. And uh, hopefully... I, I, your plug at the beginning of the podcast was great. Hopefully some of their viewers are coming over here. And if you are a new viewer that listens to, uh, the, the dead wax podcast, we welcome you and we're thrilled that you're over here. And we hope that you, uh, can share in another passion of, of mute of movies with Ray and I. Yeah. And, the, and it was a lovely time. Shout out to those two guys. They were, I mean, they're, they're friends of mine just outside of the podcast world anyway, but they were just lovely to me. They were welcoming and inviting and, it was awesome that they gave me a chance to also plug in our, our little ever-growing show. But yeah, just another shout-out to them. Dead Wax, you know, go check them out. They're also, as, as they call us, we're like cousin podcasts. <laughs> yes. Kissing we're, cousins, like you We're kissing said. cousin podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that made me laugh so hard. I was like in my car and I like spat my drink out <laughs> when he said that. So- um, no, but, but that's, that's really awesome. And so we thought Ray and I thought it would be fun because he got to do that feature that, I mean, we're very passionate about music over on this podcast. We love music. So we thought next week we would do what we've been wanting to do for a really long time now and talk film scores. Yay. I'm excited. We will be talking film scores. Um, I'm really stoked. Um, and, you know, just in general, talking about how, because I do feel like music is such an important, crucial part of not only films, but like even video games, like a video game can change, especially now when we've reached a, an age where video games can be just as great storytelling um, tools as a film that you can't just put like an 8-bit soundtrack on a video game. Like you have to add some form of like bite to it because video games and TV shows are all reaching these heights of phenomenal storytelling. And I'm excited to talk about the aspect of film um, and the music that enhances those films. I know it's probably really funny to some people too. And I think you just made a brilliant point. But when you talk about video game scores, I have never once in my life played Minecraft but the music to Minecraft is incredible. It is beautiful. I don't know like who they paid to do the the score for that, but it is some of the most well-composed, brilliant, simplistic music. And and that's the thing like when it comes to music and movies, if Ray Ray and I both can talk about movies we've watched that have heavily relied on music to where it's like 
overly emotionally manipulating you. And it takes a good director to know just the perfect balance of music to use to keep your emotions swaying with how the film is rolling and not just relying on it. And so music is equivocally just as important as the dialogue in a film. And I think about like a movie like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which had virtually no music until the very end of the film and one other scene in the movie to where the music was the entire crux and the empowering portion of the emotion of the film. And without it, it wouldn't be the same. And so it, it seems pertinent that Ray and I would have an entire episode that I talk about Johnny Greenwood. <laughs> for the for the entire episode. No, I promise I won't talk about Johnny Greenwood the entire episode. And I, Ray, I gotta be honest, I'm really excited because... You are like a scholar when it comes to film scores, and I cannot wait to hear what you got to pull out of your bag for this episode. I'm excited. I, and, and to be fair, I know it's not going to be just Johnny Greenwood. I know you'll leave at, less, at least 10 or 15 minutes for Angela Badalamenti. I knew you were going to do it, you <laughs> asshole! <laughs> no, uh, uh, that's, that's amazing. And um, so I want to do something really quickly before we go, because we have a little bit of time, but we won't take up much time. Why don't we, just for fun, give one soundtrack recommendation to the audience that they should listen to this week? One soundtrack that you think everyone should go check out and that you think is wonderful and that you just play on repeat even when you're working at your house or something. Oh, man, that's a good one. Um, One that I think I want to plug, man... See, this kind of just got really, really difficult because now I feel like I can break it. I was like, well, do I want an upbeat one? Do I want a classical one? Do I want a synth one? Um, you know what? I'll just recommend the one that I've been listening to this week. Um, you're going to laugh at me because this is I, – I mean, it's just funny because we talk about, like, these highbrow um, soundtracks. But honestly, I've been listening to this one a ton this for the past couple of weeks. Uh, and it's by a composer named Paul Leonard Morgan, and he scored the movie Dread. Oh yeah, you were talking to me about that. Yeah, so I checked out the film. It was it was it was a fun movie. It was like you know a fun shoot 'em up type of movie, um, and the score is very electronic, very um, um, almost industrial driven. Um, but it's a, it's, it's very epic, very macho. Like it, it totally has that macho dr judge dread bravado to it. Um, but it was a fun time. It almost feels like it could be like a, like a post rock album at times. Um, but it, it was, a, it's a good time. It's a fun, it's, it's more of a fun, upbeat, electronic industrial style record. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm so glad. Like, that's one that, like, even though I have not seen the movie yet, I've heard that it's way better than the original. So I'm going to check out the movie. 1000 But that's definitely one that I will just listen to the score. Like, one of the things about you that I've really appreciated since we started this podcast is you've mentioned so many scores that I've just thrown on my Spotify that I've just loved. Like, I've just really loved them. Yeah, and this one is it's straight up just, like, a very industrial electronic score. That I it, it, it honestly like I listened to the score first and then I was like I want to hear this like in context and the movie was great it was a good time. Well, I just quickly will mention I've been listening to the score a lot lately uh, and I I don't know why 
as unsettling as the movie is and as as uncomfortable as it makes me there's something comforting about the score and that's the mika levy score to under the uh to um under the skin oh that's a staple in your collection yeah i love that score i think that it's so beautifully haunting uh one of the best science fiction scores ever made uh next well, I, i'm sorry next to next to our boy score for blade runner 2049 um, have you ever seen his TikTok? It's wonderful. He has such an amazing personality. Um, but I love science fiction scores. I think that like, especially like, I think of one recently like Vesper. That score to that movie was amazing. Like, uh, there's something about that like synth mixed in with just this really like ethereal sounding instruments that just kind of transport you to another world. And that under the skin score really just makes me feel like I've transcended my body and gone somewhere else. And it takes a very specific type of musician to convey that type of emotion. And it's, it's just beautiful. I could listen to it every day for the rest of my life and I'd never be tired of it. Well, Nate, I want to, I want to just bring one more thing up before we, before we sign off. They did it. It's been done. It's finally been done. We have not just a good, but a great video game adaptation. Oh my God, dude. I knew you were going to bring up The Last of Us. And I have not watched the episode yet, but I, I've played the first game and I loved the game. And I, I love Pedro Pascal, so I know I'm going to love this show. Hey, he's he's the internet's daddy, so he is more than Oscar Isaac, and he called oh, that no. out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like on another level of daddy. Um, no, but Pedro Pascal did amazing. Don't get me wrong; like, as with every video game adaptation, they have to take some liberties. They have to cut some stuff off. You can't have three hours of Joel and Ellie wandering around the hallway. Yeah, exactly. But, so, but. They took the fact that my skin was crawling, even though I knew what was going to happen next, says enough about it. And honestly, like, I'm so excited. Obviously, like, it's we're just one episode in, and I'm so excited to see where they go. But I do love that they got um, the whole team working behind it, um, has done a great job at it. The set design, it's like I'm there, you know. the and the fact of the matter is, and I think this is where the show is succeeding. The fact that the show itself was created and pitched by the creator himself, Neil Druckmann, and Chernobyl's director, Craig Mazin. I mean, that's a that it was a match made in heaven, and they've done a great job. And I love that um, Neil Druckmann has been so involved in this TV show because you can tell that is his baby and he wants it done right. Well, that's awesome. That gives me a reason to jump on and watch it very soon. Um, so I think if Ray and I said anything at the end of today's episode, go watch the first episode of Last of Us and listen to some soundtracks for next week uh, because we we will be talking about film scores. Uh, and like I said, you can follow us at the Film Monsters Podcast for updates about the episode. You can follow Ray and I's personal handles at My Exit Unfair and Analog C where we're constantly going to be posting albums that we get whenever our 17 pre-orders finally arrive at our house and uh we appreciated discussing the films of the plague gears with you and we will see you next time take care everybody and be careful with them rats goodbye <laughs> you had to do the the ghost reference rats goodbye <laughs>